<clears throat> this is November 27th, 2021, and uh, <clears throat> this Tay show is going to be a look at the precepts. <clears throat> and uh, of course, we have today at 5 o'clock in the Buddha Hall, we'll be having uh, the ceremony of Jukai, that is the taking of the precepts. So I want to say a little bit about that, and uh, then I'm going to try somehow or other to um, <laughs> get my get this talk wrapped around um, what's really a very very big topic. And I know uh, uh, I don't have the experience that Roshi has of having done it about 40 or 50 times. <clears throat> so I'm uh, I'm prepared to screw up manfully here. Uh, the taking of the precepts is really the only uh, formal step to becoming uh, a follower of the Buddha's way, a Buddhist. And I uh, just want to say a little bit about that. Um, makes me a little uncomfortable to <coughs> uh, make too much out of a label. I think all of us as, as practitioners, as followers of the way, as people who are endeavoring to live uh, in service of life, uh, to <clears throat> work to mitigate the damage done by our attachment to our small self and to live more in harmony with our true nature, I think all of us uh, feel of an affinity with anyone who's on a similar path, whether they identify as a Buddhist or not. And, and there are many people who are members of the center who may not want to say, I'm a Buddhist. <clears throat> uh, as Roshi has pointed out, that word Buddhist and the word Buddhism didn't even exist until the West met the East sometime in the 1800s uh, that was used as a way of describing this religion that was encountered when Western missionaries and explorers uh, went to India and Japan and all these Asian countries. Until then, it was just the Dharma, the way. The uh, Buddha himself said, don't believe anything just because I say it or because a wise man says it. You need to test it for yourself. Use the uh, <clears throat> image of someone checking out a gold coin by biting it, seeing if it's soft or, or hard, <clears throat> which I guess was a way you identified counterfeit coins back in olden days. And the Dalai Lama said at one point, if we find that some teaching of Buddhism is not uh, in agreement with the findings of science, we must abandon that teaching. <clears throat> what we're all interested in is the truth. There's no council of elders that determines what the truth is. 
the truth is things as they are. <clears throat> and our effort, our lifelong, our lives long effort is to come into harmony with the way things are. <clears throat> there are three foundations of Buddhist practice, of Zen practice. <clears throat> of course, in, in Roshi Kaplan's book, The Three Pillars of Zen, I believe the formulation is teaching, practice, enlightenment. Um, but more traditionally, uh, using their using Sanskrit terminology, uh, it's Shila, S-I-L-A, Samadhi, and Prajna. So Shila is sometimes translated as discipline or ethics or virtue or morality. <clears throat> and it uh, encompasses three aspects of the eightfold path, that is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. It's the ground. It's the, it's the foundation of everything else that follows. Living ethically and purely <clears throat> is not only the ground of Buddhist practice, of the Buddhist path, it's also the result as we follow this path, as we learn more in an experiential way, as we come to see how limited our previous views were. <clears throat> So we begin to align ourselves with life, the needs of others. We begin to <clears throat> live more ethically without even thinking about it. Nonetheless, as a foundation, starting out by thinking about how do I serve others and how much do I... <clears throat> give some sort of preference to myself, that's, that's, that's where we need to start. Just to lightly touch on the other two foundations, samadhi, um, it usually means concentration, absorption, sometimes mindfulness, it's another word that uh, we use more often in Zen, which is <clears throat> Zen, the word itself, because Zen is a transliteration of the Chinese word Chan, and that is a tra transliteration of the Sanskrit word Dhyana, <clears throat> which is uh, meditative absorption, or we could say Samadhi. Then the third foundation is prajna, which uh, can mean wisdom, insight, enlightenment. With a foundation of morality, with uh, experience and absorption, concentration, we can come to see things as they are. As uh, Sheng Yen would say, we come to see the nature. And that can help to free ourselves from our fundamental ignorance, the causes of suffering.
in uh, one of uh, the Buddha's first, I guess you'd call it a sutra, I'm th talking about the Dhammapada. He talks about the effort of working on ourselves. The ability to change the way we relate to the world and to our lives. It says, as irrigators lead water where they want, as archers make their arrows straight, as carpenters carve wood, the wise shape their minds. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made up of our thoughts. If a man speaks or acts with an evil thought, pain follows him as the wheel follows the foot of the ox that draws the carriage. If a man speaks or acts with a pure thought, happiness follows him like a shadow that never leaves him. ancient China, one of the main schools of Buddhism what was, what was what was known as the Vinaya school. Uh, this was the mastery of all the precepts uh, that applied to monks and nuns. It was possibly a bigger school even than Zen. And a lot of the Chinese masters began in the Vinaya. And it was only later that they came to practice Zen. And uh, It's, a, it's, it's the foundation that we need. Dedication to living ethically and in the service of others. <clears throat> now you can practice Zen without even thinking about morality. It's, being, it's been done. And uh, you can develop powers of concentration. You can get jiriki, this meditative energy you find especially in Sashin. Um, you can become quite an impressive person. <clears throat> but there's this danger of becoming what we could call a spiritual athlete. And there are many, many, way too many sad stories of what I'd like to call a Zen sociopath. <clears throat> teachers who take advantage of their students. <clears throat> it's always a danger. First is the danger of a one-sided emphasis on an insight into emptiness. There's no one there, no one to be hurt sort of reached its peak in Japan in the samurai period when uh, Zen and the samurai way were sort of combined and you see passages about <clears throat> striking down someone with a sword the head is empty it's an ancient ancient tradition actually in, in Eastern teachings 
not just in Buddhism or in Zen. I know uh, way back when, when I was first reading uh, books about Eastern religion, I read the uh, bah bah Bhagavad Gita, yeah, <clears throat> which is uh, deals with Arjuna, a warrior, and uh, it's the same sort of advice to just become one with the battle, <clears throat> not to see any opposition. But the reality is people are getting killed. Even during World War II, uh, Harada Roshi, uh, who's one of our predecessors in this line, uh, gave advice to Japanese soldiers, tramp, 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 bang, bang, bang. It's disturbing, um, understandable, but disturbing. It's another danger in spiritual practice, and that's uh, the power imbalance. There's a student and there's a teacher. And, uh, of course, we all have heard the term power corrupts. And it's been studied. <laughs> It's been studied and we know so many examples. People in positions of power tend to lose empathy. Even people who feel virtuous <clears throat> tend to lose empathy. They did a study once where they uh, sent uh, graduate students or maybe undergraduates out to a crosswalk and they just recorded what happened as people were walking across the street on the crosswalk, which cars stopped and which cars didn't. And uh, it was pretty decisively found that the more, more expensive the car was, <clears throat> the more, in effect, the more power the driver had, uh, the less likely it was to stop. And someone uh, commenting on that study said, well, surely, though, if somebody was driving a Prius, <clears throat> they would stop, and they said, well, actually, they were the worst. <laughs> so why is that? I, I, I imagine that it's because of that feeling of virtue. <clears throat> There's a phrase, the irritability of saints. All of us probably have experienced this when you're trying really hard to be good. It's annoying when other people don't fit into your plans. <laughs> it, it, this whole practice of morality requires um, it requires that we be realistic about just how <clears throat> good we are. We're all imperfect. We're all working at this project. <clears throat> the more we focus on our superiority and the faults of others, the more we violate the precepts. It's ironic. I want to dip into, please bear with me, dip into uh, this guy Anthony DeMello that I keep reading from. <laughs> I have an addiction, I think. 
but I have to read from him here because he's just really on the nose talking about this whole question of uh, being good. Uh, he's terming it selfless charity. He says here, let me summarize what I was saying about selfless charity. I have said that there are two types of selfishness. <clears throat> Maybe I should have said three. First, when I do something, or rather when I give myself the pleasure of pleasing myself. That is, doing whatever you want. Second, when I give myself the pleasure of pleasing others. Don't take pride in that. Don't think you're a great person. You're a very ordinary person, but you've got refined tastes. Your taste is good, not the quality of your spirituality. When you were a child, you liked Coca-Cola. Now you've grown older, and you appreciate chilled beer on a hot day. You've got better taste now. When you were a child, you loved chocolates. Now you're older. You enjoy a symphony. You enjoy a poem. <clears throat> Actually, I still like chocolates. <laughs> you've got better tastes. But you're getting your pleasure all the same, except now it's in the pleasure of pleasing others. And then you've got the third type, which is the worst. When you do something good so that you won't get a bad feeling. It doesn't give you a good feeling to do it. It gives you a bad feeling to do it. You hate it. You're making loving sacrifices, but you're grumbling. How little you know of yourself if you think you don't do things that way. Since if I had a dollar for every time I did things that gave me a bad feeling, I'd be a millionaire by now. You know how it goes. Could I meet you tonight, Father? Yes, come in. I don't want to meet him, and I hate meeting him. I want to watch that TV show tonight. But how do I say no to him? I don't have the guts to say no. Come on in. And I'm thinking, oh God, <laughs> I've got to put up with this pain. It doesn't give me a good feeling to meet with him, and it doesn't give me a good feeling to say no to him. So I choose the lesser of the two evils, and I say, okay, come on in. I'm going to be happy when this thing is over, and I'll be able to take my smile off. But I start the session with him. How are you? Wonderful, he says. And he goes on and on about how he loves that workshop. And I'm thinking, oh God, when is he going to come to the point? <laughs> Finally, he comes to the point, and I metaphorically slam him against the wall and say, well, any fool can solve that kind of problem, and I send him out. Whew, got rid of him, I say. <laughs> and the next morning at breakfast, because I'm feeling I was so rude, I go up to him and I say, how's life? And he answers, pretty good. And he adds, you know, what you said to me last night was a real help. Can I meet you today after lunch? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> we're all of us tainted with our selfish desires it's just the nature of the beast it's, it's, it's how we are um, <clears throat> we want to improve and we do improve people do become more open and more they carry themselves more lightly and they're quicker to see when there are needs and they're quicker to actually act on what they see um, but it's a slow-going process. And the minute you start thinking that you're standing somewhere along that road, 
you're fooling yourself. Please don't take this to mean I'm saying you shouldn't take the precepts. <laughs> Guess one way of putting it is this, this journey that we're go going on is a long, long journey. Let's call it a journey of 10,000 miles. And someone who's made a little bit of progress, maybe they're a step or two farther down the path than someone else that they may compare themselves with. Or maybe they're a step or two behind. But what's important is not the few steps any of us may have taken. It's the direction that we're going in. It's seeing the precepts and Zen practice itself, the entire thing, the whole enchilada, as an aspiration. <clears throat> in AA there's the phrase, progress not perfection. There's a story which I heard once, tried to find it on the internet and came up empty. Um, but it's the story of uh, someone, I think maybe in ancient India, who uh, finds out somehow that there is this amazing treasure hidden under the sea. And he decides he's going to get that treasure, and so he goes to the sea and brings a bucket and he starts emptying it, day after day. <clears throat> I don't know where he's putting the water that doesn't go back into the sea. But <laughs> for the sake of the story, let's say, <laughs> he's able to disapparate it. <clears throat> uh, so the gods finally notice him there, working away, and, and uh, one of them comes down to earth and, and speaks to him and says, you know, why are you doing this? And he explains, you know, I know this treasure that you've hidden under the sea and I'm going to empty it and, and get it and take care of my family and take care of everyone. And the God says, you can do this day after day for the rest of your life and you'll never finish. And the man turns back to him and says, yes, but when I die, I'm going to come back and continue in as many lifetimes as it takes. And the God realizes, oh my God, <laughs> Eventually, he will empty the sea. And in the story, <clears throat> he's then presented with the treasure. It's another story. guy walking along the seashore, and uh, there's been a storm, and all these starfish have washed up onto the beach, and, uh, you know, they're too far to get back into the water, and so they're all in the process of dying. And he begins picking them up, and one by one, throwing them back in, and somebody asks him, this whole beach for miles in every direction is littered with starfish. How can you possibly save them all? What difference is it going to make? The man picks up a starfish and says, it makes a difference to this one, and throws it back in the sea. <clears throat> it's so sad to see people who suddenly have gotten a, a sense of how difficult it is to achieve perfection, to measure up to whatever standard they have, to see those people fall off in practice 
because they say they feel they're not good enough. So many of us struggle with that idea of how do I measure up. We have to we have to recognize we're always going to fall short. <clears throat> Things Zen Master Dogen said. Zen is a practice of continuous failure. What's important is the direction. Taking the next step. <clears throat> I'm going to read a little something from my latest go-to person, Joko Beck. tells it as it is. <laughs> she says, people often say to me, Joko, why do you make practice so hard? Why don't you hold out any cookies at all? But from the point of view of the small self, practice can only be hard. Practice annihilates the small self, and the small self isn't interested in that one bit. It can't be expected to greet this annihilation with joy, so there's no cookie that can be held out for the small self unless we want to be dishonest. <clears throat> and then she holds out a cookie. There is another side to practice, however. As our small self dies, our angry, demanding, complaining, maneuvering, manipulating self, a real cookie appears. Joy and genuine self-confidence. We begin to taste what it feels like to care about someone else without expecting anything in return. And this is true compassion. How much we have it depends on the rate at which the small self dies. As it dies, here and there, we have moments when we see what life is. Sometimes we can spontaneously act and serve others. And with this growth always comes repentance. When we realize that we have almost constantly hurt ourselves and others, we repent, and this repentance itself is pure joy. <clears throat> the joy of knowing the way, of seeing how things are. <clears throat> it's progress, not perfection. So in the ceremony of taking the precepts, one of the first things we do is a repentance gata. <clears throat> the ceremony begins with all of us reciting all harmful actions committed by me since time immemorial, stemming from greed, anger, and delusion, arising from body, speech, and mind, I now repent having committed. <clears throat> In a formal repentance ceremony, uh, we go on to make a commitment to end whatever behavior we're repenting. It's not enough just to be sorry. We need to take action. The best action we can take is not to do it again. If we've hurt someone, how can we make it up to them? By our commitment not to do it again.
I like what Jogo says. Repentance itself is joy. <clears throat> it's the joy of pointing ourselves in the right direction. Having the courage to recognize what we're doing wrong. Having the courage to commit ourselves to overcoming. Having uh, gone through that brief repentance ceremony, we then launch into the 16 precepts. There are <clears throat> uh, the three refuges, so they're considered three of the precepts. Uh, then there's what's called sometimes the three pure precepts, and finally the ten cardinal precepts that uh, we do in Zen. In other, uh, in other forms of Buddhism, the number of precepts may vary. There's, there's variations. The first five of the cardinal precepts that we do are pretty much common to all schools of Buddhism. <clears throat> But the three refuges is where we start. We say, I take refuge in Buddha and resolve that with all beings I will understand the great way whereby the Buddha seed may forever thrive. I take refuge in Dharma and resolve that with all beings I will enter deeply into the Sutra treasure whereby my wisdom may grow as vast as the ocean. I take refuge in Sangha and in its wisdom, example, and never-failing help, and resolve to live in harmony with all sentient beings. <clears throat> so it's the three refuges, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, which we could call maybe realization, truth, and harmony. There's a tendency when we take refuge in Buddha to think of Shakyamuni Buddha, Think of the figure on the altar, but really it's we're taking refuge in our true nature, in who we really are. Taking refuge in awareness, in awakening. And then Dharma, people often think of it as well, that's the sutras, the teachings of the Buddha. But really by Dharma, <clears throat> I think a more profound way to see it is the way things are. <clears throat> when this happens, then that happens. It's, it's, it encompasses the three characteristics of existence. Impermanence, that nothing lasts forever. Suffering, because of our clinging, because of our desire for things to last or for things not to last, we suffer when we're not in tune with the way things are. <clears throat> and then finally, the truth of no self. There is no person, no thing. It's just a process. <clears throat> so having taken three times through the three refuges, we move on to the three, what we call the three resolutions, <clears throat> or else, elsewhere they're called the three pure precepts. 
And in our formulation, it's I resolve to avoid wrong, I resolve to do good, I resolve to liberate all living beings. <clears throat> Pretty good summation. Of course, liberating all living beings is like emptying the sea. through that three times running and then uh, once through the ten cardinal precepts. I'd like to say a little bit about those. <clears throat> Probably not time to go into as much depth as we'd like. So the first of the precepts is I resolve not to kill but to cherish all life. And we can take that literally, don't kill other people uh, and we can also take it, and, and don't kill animals, and, uh, you know, just everything we can do to preserve life. It's difficult to make an absolute out of it. Um, there's the example of a rabid dog. In order to protect others, it might be necessary to kill the dog. forced in some way or another to kill. We can't, we can't live without killing, you know, even if it's only microorganisms and vegetables. Um, some people see this precept and they think this means I need to become a vegetarian and uh, we've never taught that at this center. Um, the center itself obviously serves only vegetarian food and many of our members are <clears throat> Do not eat meat. But Roshi Kaplow, who was probably one of the most strict people about that in his own personal life, he wouldn't even wear leather shoes or a leather belt, advised, he said, don't give up meat. Let meat give you up. If you, if you continue on this path, you may find, no guarantee, you may find that it just comes naturally to give up meat. <clears throat> it, it, you don't want it to turn into a should. This is how I should be. I'll be a bad person if I don't. Then you're back into Anthony DeMello's doing it so you won't have a bad feeling. All the precepts work when they come out of a love for life. They come out of joy. Of course, killing also has a figurative meaning. meaning. So, for instance, when you label someone, when you write them off, you're killing them in a way. When you interrupt someone, 
You're killing what they're saying. You can kill time. When, you, uh, when we allow ourselves to lapse into automatic pilot, just sort of going through our day with, a, with little or no awareness, we're killing our life. <clears throat> I like the positive side of this, to cherish all life. <clears throat> this means to truly see others. And when we do, they come alive. Everything comes alive when we see it. If the world seems gray and undistinguished, it's because we're asleep. You really see this after Sashin. Everything is shiny and new. <clears throat> Brought the world back to life. The second precept is I resolve not to take what is not given, but to respect the things of others. This, this can mean simply not wasting someone else's time. It means not getting caught up in gaining and grasping. It, it, it means being okay with what we have, being able to rest in this moment which is what is given. What we have is right now. <clears throat> the good and the bad. It's a story about uh, Joseph Heller, the author who wrote Catch-22. <clears throat> At a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island, not sure where Shelter Island is, <clears throat> Kurt Vonnegut informs his pal Joseph Heller that their host, a hedge fund manager, had made more money in a single day than Heller had earned from his widely, wildly popular novel Catch-22 over its whole history. And Joseph Heller responded, yes, but I have something he will never have. Enough. <clears throat> Respecting the things of others means taking care of things, not wasting. It's always hard to do this in a community. Lots of different people driving the cars, going through the rooms. means taking care of people. The third precept is, I resolve not to misuse sexuality, but to be caring and responsible. Again, what's important is not to be selfish. Our sexual drive is a natural part of our being. Even someone who's celibate has a sexual drive. But if we use that to objectify others, to cause harm to others, 
take advantage of them, to manipulate them, to lose our connection. It's the same thing again, we need to see the other. See the other as ourself. <clears throat> the fourth precept is, I resolve not to cause others to abuse alcohol or drugs, nor to do so myself, but to keep the mind clear. <clears throat> when I went into uh, treatment for uh, alcohol abuse, <laughs> uh, I found out later from my counselor that she was somewhat intimidated because I was a Zen student and uh, her brother, she said, told her, just ask him about how he's doing with the fourth precept. <laughs> <laughs> Which hopefully gave her the confidence to help me quite a bit. I owe a debt to her. Of course, um, by the way, we skipped a precept. This uh, copy I've got of the uh, libretto for the ceremony is missing one of the precepts. <laughs> it's a good, good thing we had this, Teisho. <laughs> we'll get back to that one. It's, it's not to lie, but to speak the truth. But we're, we're, we're doing drugs right now. <laughs> so, obviously, drinking... Or, or using drugs, can be a gateway for breaking every other one of the precepts. In fact, there's a Tibetan story about that. <clears throat> guy gets drunk and ends up slaughtering his animal and basically one by one manages to break each of the precepts. Um, nevertheless, people drink and it's not necessarily a problem. Uh, it is for some, some of us and uh, you know, there's a good solution which is not to drink. Um, but it's okay for some people. Carl Jung famously said, an honest drink would no man forbid. That was my favorite Carl Jung quote for many, many years. <laughs> A friend of mine pointed out, yeah, but I don't think it's an honest drink, John. It's funny, when I, when I did uh, stop drinking, I was speaking with my mother by, the f by phone, and I told her, and uh, she's a bit of, she was a bit of a drinker. And she said, well, surely you could have a glass of Christmas cheer. <laughs> I said, nah, actually not. <laughs> but it does point out one of the dangers of drinking under control. You know, there are people who don't get into big problems with their drinking, and yet it kind of saps part of their life. So it's something to look at, even if you're not, uh, you know, getting a DWI or getting into some sort of a fight or a jam. Um, is it an honest drink? A lot of people end up with sort of a habitual cocktail hour every day of their life. 
and you know once they've had two or three they're not really all there kind of uh, losing something aren't they and of course this precepts makes clear that it also we also have a responsibility for others and so we can easily by our example or by our encouragement uh, lead others into something that maybe we can handle but they can't okay, I'm gonna jump back to the third not to lie but to speak the truth I uh, remember when I was uh, first in AA uh, I was going off to these meetings and I was also in, in uh, treatment and during one of our treatment ses sessions this counselor I mentioned earlier confronted somebody else in the group who I apparently was not being honest about his relapses and she gave him the task of at the next AA meeting to bring up the topic of telling the truth, not lying. And uh, it was, it was a very, one of the very first meetings I went to. And uh, I had noticed somebody in the room who looked to me like he wasn't really with it, kind of slouching in his chair and didn't seem to be really paying close attention. But when the topic got brought up, he, he spoke. And uh, it was pretty amazing. And what he said was, I'm honest because I like to travel light. Life becomes so much simpler and direct when we commit ourselves to being truthful. When we stop finding shortcuts that are based on letting other people have a misunderstanding that's convenient for us. <clears throat> when we're willing to share what's really going on with us. There's another saying, oh what, a, when, oh what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And then I think Ogden Nash added on two lines, but when we've practiced for a bit, no, wait a minute, when we've practiced for a while, how vastly we improve our style. <clears throat> I think we all have a certain amount of skill at letting other people believe what we want them to believe. Those are the first five of the precepts, and I have time to just lightly tap on each of the next five. So six and seven, uh, this is one that a lot of people struggle with. This is, you can work on this for a long, long time. You can work on them all for a long time. But uh, six goes like this. I resolve not to speak of the faults of others, but to be understanding and sympathetic. And then seven is... I resolve not to praise myself and disparage others, but to overcome my own shortcomings. Anybody who even thinks about those two for a minute realizes how hard that is going to be to do. Um, 
it's so tempting to praise oneself and point out the shortcomings of others, usually not directly to them, but, you know, to <laughs> among friends. We just reinforce our small self, our self-bias. If we're truly in the service of life, when others are wrong, we want to help. We don't want to gloat over it. We don't want to make needless comparisons. It really comes down to right speech. How is it helpful? Zen Master Muman said, if you argue right and wrong, you are a person of right and wrong. That is, a person who dwells in criticism. It's one thing to see. We definitely see the faults of others. It's just the way things are. We see if someone has brown hair or red hair. We also see if someone's irritable or not generous or lazy. But if that then leads us into this comparison between ourselves and them, um, we've dropped into the service of the small self. Not many of us praise ourselves overtly, <clears throat> but uh, some of us, especially me, have a tendency to <clears throat> sort of bring out for the view of others something <clears throat> wonderful that we think we've done. I have some friends who pat me on the back, literally, when I do that. <laughs> <laughs> the irony is not lost on me. These are things we just have to work on, to notice first. It's, it's one of the things that people often do in a term intensive is take uh, one or two of the precepts and just try to see how they play out in their lives. And you can learn a lot by doing that. <clears throat> it's not a reason, again, to feel bad about yourself. Um, it's just to see. And as we see, as our awareness grows, a lot of this just naturally drops away without our needing to beat ourselves up about it. Just a question of being clear-eyed and awake. The eighth is, I resolve not to withhold spiritual or material aid, but to give them freely where needed. We have to balance it against taking care of our own needs and taking care of the needs of our family and others, but um, this, this is the, one of the paramitas, one of the perfections, is giving. We can give things, we can give our attention, we can give advice, we can give help, and that tendency to withhold it is always self-protection. The more we can <clears throat> open up, open our heart, open our chest, 
the more able we are to give without thinking about what we get in return. <clears throat> the ninth is I re resolve not to indulge in anger, but to practice forbearance. Again, this one starts with awareness. To see when we're angry, to feel it in the body. <clears throat> the minute we move our attention to what's going on in reality, in ourselves, the more we slip away from focusing on whatever it is that we're furious about. I always like to say that the hardest anger to manage is justified anger. When we truly have been wronged, it's very hard not to just focus on the wrong. <clears throat> and, and it'll come up. But then if we stay there, if we nurse our grudge, I use that term all my life, nursing a grudge, and it never occurred to me that's a, that's a metaphor. That's a mother nursing a child. It's my little pet grudge I'm holding to my, <laughs> my teat, <laughs> keeping it alive. <clears throat> we can use our anger, the fact that we're angry, uh, if we can just acknowledge it, without going overboard. We speak the truth. If we don't focus on what kind of a person would do such a thing, but just on the act itself, then our anger can be clean and helpful. <clears throat> for some people, it's a bigger uh, struggle than for others. Some people have an angry nature. Uh, both Harada Roshi and Yastani Roshi had uh, that tendency towards anger. With Harada, he told someone once that even after coming to awakening, it took him ten years before he felt he had uh, control of his anger. He was from a samurai family, of course, <clears throat> no samurai in these days, but that was the family heritage, and uh, he had a ferocious temper as a young man and felt that if he hadn't gotten into Zen, he would have probably ended up killing someone. <clears throat> then the final uh, precept, number 10, I resolve not to revile the three treasures, but to cherish and uphold them. Which sort of sums the whole thing up. Three treasures, again, are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. The more we value them, the more we can see how meaningful they are for us, the more we will uphold them, and the more progress we'll make on this, on this endless path. <clears throat> then once everybody's done that, uh, whoever's officiating says, we have all now been confirmed as members of the Buddha's family. And our time is up. Stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 